first Molecular Minute podcast, the healthcare podcast focusing on precision oncology, molecular profiling, and how both are heavily integrated in taking care of patients and in advancing therapeutics for cancer care, as well as improving the outcomes of patients with cancer. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Caris Life Sciences. As you know, a few weeks ago, we had the first ever virtual American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the meeting could not be conducted live. We all missed seeing each other. We all missed seeing our colleagues, our collaborators, but I really congratulate the American Society of Clinical Oncology for a well-executed virtual meeting. I think we learned a lot. I think we were still able to communicate, and we really made the best of it. And as a Chicago native and living in Chicago, I am hoping that the next meeting in 2021 will be live, and all of these pandemic issues are behind us and I see you all in the beautiful city of Chicago. Today, we are going to discuss what are the new uh, data that have emerged during that meeting as it pertains to lung cancer. Lung cancer, one of the most common cancers in the United States, takes a lot of lives, and, and again, I don't need to bore you with the details that you already know, but there are several attractive and important presentations that took place during this last American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. And I would like to discuss these and review them with my guest, Dr. Stephen Liu. Dr. Stephen Liu is an associate professor and a clinical scholar at Georgetown University and MedStar Healthcare System. He is going to join me to discuss updates on lung cancer from the first ever virtual ASCO meeting. So Stephen, uh, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I really appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule. Uh, for some folks who uh, don't know you and um, uh, also, don't follow you on Twitter. We need to get them to follow you on Twitter. <laughs> Just a little bit about you and maybe what got you interested in thoracic oncology from a medical oncologist of specialty. Uh, sure. So, you know, I am a medical oncologist. My focus is on thoracic oncology, lung cancer specifically. Uh, I lead the lung cancer program here at Georgetown. I'm also director of the developmental therapeutics program at the Lombardi Cancer Center. And, you know, thoracic oncology is an area where, you know, uh, as soon as I got an academic appointment, that's where my clinical focus turned. My training during fellowship was actually in GU oncology and prostate cancer. That's where a lot of the work I had done as a fellow was focused on. But as I looked for academic jobs, uh, first, there wasn't really a GU position uh, at USC, which is where I, I had finished training where I wanted to stay for a year or two. Uh, and there was an opening in lung cancer. And when you think of, of sort of room for improvement and the type of impact you can have, if you look at the five-year survival of prostate cancer, while it's certainly an area where we continuously need improvements, the five-year survival is about as close to 100% as you can get. Whereas in lung cancer at the time, the five-year survival was really just about 10%. Now that's improved somewhat over time, 
but really it seemed like an area where you could make a bigger impact, where there was a lot, uh, a lot of room for improvement. And I think that's really played out over the past couple of years that our, our whole paradigm of treatment for lung cancer has changed all for the better. And we've made dramatic improvements and, and uh, I was glad to be a part of that and enter the field at that time. Uh, and so my focus really is on, on precision oncology on trying to develop the right treatment for the right patient. After fellowship, I was fortunate enough to spend uh, some time with Dan Von Hoff at TGen, sort of learning a bit more about NGS, about the proper way to use uh, NGS and, and sort of interpreting uh, on a molecular level, the, the differences between these cancers. Now we can try to leverage those differences and really exploit them. And I learned so much, not just about sequencing the technology, but about trial development, about drug development, and, and frankly, about being an oncologist. I think Dan uh, sets really the, the highest bar and, and was such an example for me. And so much of my clinic today is based on what I took away from, from Dan in those months I spent with him in Phoenix. Uh, so now in, in DC, my focus is on lung cancer and we've got a great team here and I've been able to collaborate in some meaningful ways with Karis over the past few years. Great, so Stephen, uh, we both attended the virtual American Society of Oncology meeting and I wanna, you know, you, this is your area. So I want you to take us through maybe the top three, four presentations that really caught your attention. And uh, I know that you had also some work and some presentations while you were there. So let's start, let's, uh, let's take us through the first one. Sure, I mean, the, the buzz was really about Adora. And so rather than save that for the, the, the end, I think we may as well start with that. It's a huge story. Uh, for those not familiar with the field, this is a randomized placebo-controlled phase three trial for patients with completely resected EGFR mutant lung cancer, stage 1b to 3a. Uh, only including sensitized EGFR mutations, deletion 19, uh, exon 21, L858R. Uh, they randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive adjuvant osimertinib at 80 milligrams a day for three years or placebo. Uh, they were allowed to have adjuvant chemotherapy uh, between surgery and osimertinib. No radiation was delivered. The primary endpoint is what we saw, and that was disease-free survival in stage two and three. And that study was so markedly positive that the Independent Data Monitoring Committee recommended early unblinding for that trial. So uh, what we saw was an unplanned interim analysis. Uh, we saw about 55% of patients got chemotherapy, 45% did not, but that likely just reflects the fact that there were about a third of the patients that were stage 1B and disease-free survival was dramatically improved, right? The primary endpoint DFS hazard ratio in stage two and three was 0.17. And when you see a hazard ratio that looks like a p-value, you know you're you're on the right track. Uh, the two-year disease-free survival rate was 90% with osimertinib, only 44% with placebo. Overall, as a whole, the DFS hazard ratio was 0.21, still very impressive. Their cutoff for positivity was 0.7. So these are, are profoundly positive results really at every stage. Overall, though, the study is immature for overall survival, and the debate we're seeing unfold now is how clinically relevant is disease-free survival as an endpoint. You know, in this setting, some patients are cured by surgery and chemotherapy, and many patients do recur, as we see in that placebo arm. But right now, we don't have a clear way to identify who will recur. And I think that as time passes, that's really what we're going to learn from these settings, um, from some of the correlative science done in this trial, in the NCI Alchemist trial, and other sequencing events that are undergoing and, and hopefully will, will come forward. We want to identify who are those patients that still need more therapy, and then we can more sort of appropriately deliver uh, therapy in that setting. Right now, we don't have a way to identify who's gonna fall off that curve, so the only way to, uh, to go forward is to treat everybody 
knowing that you're going to treat some people who are cured and, and don't really need that therapy. Uh, and certainly there'll be a great cost to the patient and to the system or to wait until recurrence and really try to rescue patients with osimertinib at the time of relapse, knowing that you won't be able to rescue 100% of patients. So uh, the, the right practice is probably somewhere in between. You know, I think once it's approved personally, I think that disease-free survival benefits probably too great to ignore. And I think this does become a standard of care, but really we need to discuss the benefit and the limitations of the data. And we're seeing some, some very important conversations and debates go forward. Uh, ultimately, it's going to be a shared decision-making model with our patients. Uh, but I think that this is probably the, the biggest change to practice that had come out of ASCO 20. So, but what this means is that you, for patients who normally you would have not checked the mutation or sequence to look at the EGFR mutation in the adjuvant setting, now you need to test that uh, on the resected specimen uh, because that adjuvant therapy is in the, in the patients who are EGFR positive mutation. So that's big, right? So this changes a lot of paradigms about how we structure our care. Right now, we're doing molecular profiling, broad-based, for everyone with stage four non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. And this changes things. This really moves it up into the resected 1B to 3 uh, once this drug is approved, because that would change management. So we need to know. And I would argue that in the coming years, sort of looking ahead, we're seeing a lot of activity with neoadjuvant therapy for resectable lung cancer that is probably going to be immunotherapy in some form. And if we're talking about neoadjuvant immunotherapy, I kind of need to know if EGFR is present before that. Uh, picture a setting where I have someone with a stage two or early three who's getting neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. They receive immunotherapy. They go to surgery. Great surgery. Stage three. I know they're high risk. Now I want to give them adjuvant osimertinib if they're EGFR positive. Because they received immunotherapy, is osimertinib going to be a little more dangerous after immunotherapy? We know that is the case in stage four. Is it the case in resectable? And if so, I kind of need to know the EGFR status before neoadjuvant therapy. So not even after surgery, but at the very beginning with diagnosis. And how do you do that in a timely manner that doesn't delay that surgery? Maybe looking at reflex testing. You need expedited testing. We need those results right away. And because right now the paradigm is just EGFR, we might start to see some single gene testing done. I got to tell you, that seems like a step backwards to, to really go back to single gene testing. If this holds true for EGFR, one could certainly see in the future how it may hold true for others. And I really think you want to gather as much information as you can. So to me, it's going to be tough for me to sign a, a single gene assay order. And really, I'm, I'm still relying on NGS, but I do think I'm going to want that earlier and earlier because it influences all the downstream care. And I think you probably will expect some overall survival uh, update in the next one to two years, or maybe even more. But uh, I would expect that every ASCO probably will get some update on this trial. Yeah, I 100% I agree with you. And these data are going to be sort of bled out over the years. Very interesting data. And we'll have to analyze it from all different aspects because there are big implications. But uh, this is a, a huge story and one we're still kind of processing. Okay, let's uh, move to another one. What, what else do you have for us? Well, you know, there was a, a quite a bit of activity in small cell, a lot of negative trials that had come up. And this is an area where, where I have a particular interest. You know, we've already known now for a few years that the addition of a PDL1 inhibitor, um, immunotherapy to frontline chemo improves survival. Uh, in 2018, uh, I had presented the data for Empower 133 that showed the addition of a tezolizumab to carbonatopicide improved both PFS and OS, which led to FDA approval in March 2019. Caspian showed similar efficacy with the addition of DERVA to platinum atopicide. 
And at ASCO, we saw two other results. And these ones didn't meet their primary endpoints, but it's important to sort of pay attention to these negative trials as well. The first was the third arm of caspian, the addition of dervalumab and the CTLA-4 inhibitor tremolimumab. And uh, this did not improve survival over chemo alone, uh, which I think on a larger scale calls into question the role of CTLA-4 inhibition overall in this disease. The other was Keynote 604. This is a large phase three trial that looked at the addition of pembrolizumab, a PD-1 inhibitor chemotherapy. And while it did improve progression-free survival, it did not meet its overall survival endpoint. We leave ASCO20 with the same standards of care for small cell, with atezolizumab or dervalumab in addition to chemotherapy as the first-line treatment, all comer for small cell lung cancer. Uh, but these negative trials, I think, are, are very important. And we realize that the, the benefit from immunotherapy is probably carried by a small subset of those patients. And what we need to do is find out a way to identify who those patients are, uh, you know, whether it's going to be genomics or, more likely, uh, potentially these transcriptional subsets. We saw from Taufika Wanakoko an interesting poster looking at uh, expression of YAP1. Previously, we'd seen Slefin 11 and PARP inhibitors, but YAP1 subsets really seem to maybe derive more benefit from immunotherapy. And so we need to think a little bit outside the box and maybe go more towards, in some diseases, kind of returning towards some immunohistochemistry assays, really trying to develop those biomarkers. And that was the theme of this ASCO for me, that lung cancer continues to be subdivided into smaller and smaller subsets, which allows us to be more and more precise, which is to everyone's benefit. You deliver therapy where it's going to be effective, where there's going to be little toxicity, uh, and that continues just on a, a much larger and larger scale as we go forward. You had your own, uh, some presentations of your own. Tell us about what you have, uh, what, what you presented, and, and what type of data you, you shared with colleagues at ASCO from your own work. So uh, one area that got a lot of attention was KRAS. You know, for a long time, KRAS mutant lung cancer has been this undruggable target. It's relatively common in non-small cell lung cancer, but there haven't been effective therapies. But you've seen the buzz in the past year or two with AMG510, with MRTX849 and others, small molecules that really lock KRAS in an inactive state and uh, have shown very impressive efficacy, high response rates, minimal toxicity, you know, these are exciting drugs. And there are a lot of ongoing trials looking at monotherapy, combination therapy, both for KRAS G12C uh, specifically, but also some pan-KRAS inhibitors entering trials. So what we did in, the, in a very productive collaboration with Haas Borge at uh, Fox Chase uh, and Keras was really to describe KRAS mutations in lung cancer in a lot more depth. So we looked at this huge data set to describe the characteristics of KRAS. We looked at over 17,000 non-small cell lung cancer specimens that were appropriately and thoroughly sequenced. And we saw that KRAS mutations existed in about 4,700 cases. That's 27% incidence of KRAS mutations. But if you look by histology, the mutations were seen in 37% of ADNO, about 4% of squamous. It's important to, to remember the histologic context of these cancers as well. Among the KRAS mutant lung cancers, G12C was the most common accounting for 40% of all the KRAS mutations we saw, followed by G12V at 19% and G12D at 15%. Uh, but there are also some signs when we look at the, the whole genomic signature that each of these KRAS mutations has differences in their genomic context. And those could be potentially relevant. You know, one thing that gets thrown around a lot is TMB. Uh, we looked at TMB and this really varied across KRAS mutants. If we see a cutoff for high TMB, we saw high TMB in 68% of G13X and only 43% in G12D. 
In addition, PDL1 expression varied a lot. Uh, G12C was the most likely to be PDL1 positive and PDL1 high. And co-mutations varied as well in P53, STK11, NF1, for example. And uh, I think the lesson here is that we can increasingly appreciate the heterogeneity of, of each lung cancer. You know, we've gone from non-small cell versus small cell to squame versus non-squame to really achieving this high-definition genomic classification. And that classification may be more than just a single driver event. It's no longer enough to know if it's KRAS mutant or wild type. We need to know the specific KRAS mutation. And maybe we need the entire genomic background, co-mutations uh, and all, to really understand how to choose the optimal therapy. I think each of these mutations will play a role in the biology of these diseases. And the better we understand that, the better we can treat it. Okay, that's great. Next step maybe is to consider how these drugs that work against the KRAS mutation have activity, or is that already established? Or No, not really. You know, uh, we've seen a lot of efficacy in G12C uh, KRAS mutations with a lot of these direct inhibitors because they really um, lock onto that cysteine. But the co-mutations, I think, are going to influence how well they work. Response is just part of it. What we're seeing, and some of this data is still kind of coming out, but some of these responses are transient and some are very durable. And I think the key in that is even among KRAS G12C, there's a lot of heterogeneity. And some of those changes are going to tell you that this inhibitor is going to work beautifully for a very long time. And some are going to say, you're just going to get a transient response. And maybe those are cases where we need to add immunotherapy, where we need to add chemotherapy, we need to add sort of different combinations to that. So I think we can parse that down even more. And you know, as precise as we can get, uh, that, that really has to be our goal. Anything else that also was uh, caught your attention? Yeah, you know, we, we also presented a, an update on our NRG1 data set. And to me, this is something I'm very passionate about. What's the NRG? Uh, Tell people who may not know what NRG is, if you want. So uh, NRG1, or neuregulin 1, this is a growth factor that exists physiologically. It's got this EGF-like domain, uh, epidermal growth factor domain, and it binds to HER3 and uh, leads to dimerization. Uh, dimerization then activates signaling pathways downstream uh, that are important for cell growth and survival. NRG fusions can exist in oncology, and these pathologic fusions can tether the growth factor in close proximity to the receptor, uh, or sometimes it's paracrine signaling, but it leads to abnormal dimerization and activation of this pathway sort of constitutively. These are transforming events. These are, are important in oncology, and because this activity is really through this HER pathway that we understand, we can target it. Uh, a fatinib, is a pan-HER inhibitor that's shown clear activity in cancers that have an NRG1 fusion, and that's being explored in the ongoing ASCO taper trial. And there are two other drugs, uh, one tarloxotinib, a hypoxia-activated pan-HER inhibitor, and the other is enacutuzumab um, from Miris. That's a, a HER2, HER3 bispecific antibody. These both have very compelling preclinical support for NRG1 fusion-positive cancers, and they're both being explored in prospective phase two trials. Uh, both those studies open at Georgetown. And to me, this is an important driver where we don't have an FDA-approved drug. And there are very few of those that remain. But to act on these fusions, you have to find them. And NRG1 is this huge gene, right? It's 1.4 megabases long. So that one gene is one two thousandth of the whole genome. Uh, and only 0.3% actually encode protein. So if your next-gen sequencing is DNA-based, you're never going to find this. You can't devote the sequencing capacity you'd need to cover this monster of a gene. So the only real way to find an energy one fusion is with an RNA-based platform. So we looked in, at this year's ASCO, we looked at the CARES data set of you know, almost 45,000 samples 
And in that huge data set, we found 82 fusions, so that's 0.2%. It's actually the same incidence we described when we published the initial data with Keras in clinical cancer research in 2019. This is most frequently seen in lung cancer, but we also see them in, in some common cancers, cholangiocarcinoma, Keras wild-type pancreatic cancer, colorectal cancer, breast cancer. There are a lot of different fusion partners. We're still trying to figure out whether that has any clinical relevance, but as we go forward, I think it's really important to identify these patients. Patients I've seen in my practice with energy one fusions were female, never smokers, younger, sort of the phenotype for this driver-positive non-small cell lung cancer, and both of my patients did very poorly with standard therapy. I think this is a, a different biology, and it's rare. I get that. You're never going to want to do just an NRG1 assay, but if it's part of your initial NGS platform and you're going to pick this up, this represents a different biology and, and a different cancer. And uh, you know, I think that finding these fusions are important. I'm very excited about the NRG1 work um, that we've done here, along with one of my, my, my fellows, Shishma Jonah. Uh, but I think the other big story uh, that I, would, I do want to mention from ASCO was HER2. You know, we saw data from trastuzumab deruxtecan, TDXD. That's an antibody drug conjugate that targets HER2. That was approved late last year for HER2-positive breast cancer. And at ASCO, we saw the data for HER2 mutant non-small cell lung cancer, and it was very impressive. Small sets, only 42 patients, but the response rate was north of 60%. Disease control rate, 90%. And these were durable, with a median progression-free survival over a year. Uh, almost half the patients are still on treatment. There's some toxicity, but this is definitely an agent to keep an eye on. And when we start adding these up, MET, RET, uh, EGFR, ALK, ROS1, BRAF, now HER2, NRG1, uh, NTRAC, it's clear that we need to test for all these upfront, not just to positively select patients for targeted therapy, but to maybe deselect them from immunotherapy. And, and these broad NGS platforms, preferably RNA-based, really are the, the only way you can choose the right therapy for, for a patient in front of you. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. This is uh, amazing. I'm old enough to remember that when I started internship, the standard of care therapy was hospice for stage four lung cancer. And then we were trying to convince folks that they need to refer for systemic chemotherapy because maybe there's some survival benefits. So it's really fascinating how we have evolved thanks to you, your research and other people's work over the years. I can't thank you enough for taking the time of your busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and learning about advances in lung cancer from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the recent meeting that took place in Chicago in the first ever virtual platform. And until next time, take care of yourselves. And thank you for listening.